Welcome to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2006. Today's episode is entitled, The Greatest American Christian. Listen to the story of arguably the greatest Christian in American history. He turned down the job offer of his dreams because of principle, knowing that it cost him his job, virtually all of his worldly possessions, and his citizenship. What made this man great was the way he lived, with impeccable integrity no matter what the price. Go back with me to the year 1865. Those of you that know your history know something about what was going on at that time. That was the end of the Civil War. And you talk about disaster, the Civil War was a disaster. We've been focused on Hurricane Katrina in recent days and it's how it's devastated the Gulf Coast and all the, the, the billions of dollars of damage that have been done approximately, what, seven, eight hundred lives lost that we know of so far, and the count continues to rise. The Civil War cost a million casualties. It took four years and encompassed far more than the Gulf Coast. It encompassed basically the whole South. The South was basically the battleground, particularly the state of Virginia. Virginia was right on the border there with the northern states. It was right there adjacent to Washington, and so it received... a far more than its fair share of battles. As a result of these battles, there was great carnage and destruction. The Union forces really didn't care if they destroyed farms and cities or crops. They were ruthless about executing their command to try to to win against the Confederate Army. So the South was essentially destroyed. Most of the cities were destroyed. Most of the farms were destroyed. The assets were pretty much gone. In the midst of this, in Virginia, there is a city by the name of Lexington, Virginia. Lexington, Virginia is the home of two higher-level institutions. One of them you know very well, called VMI, Virginia Military Institute. It's the school that Stonewall Jackson taught at prior to his serving in the Civil War. And as you probably know, Stonewall Jackson did not survive the Civil War. He was killed. The other institution in Lexington was called Liberty Hall Academy. And you may not have ever heard of Liberty Hall Academy, but in 1865, it had been in existence about 115 years. It was established in the middle of the 1700s. It was a small liberal college. And at this time, in the summer of 1865, Liberty Hall Academy was in great disarray. They had not been able to conduct classes for some time because of the war. The buildings were basically in disrepair. The student body consisted of 40 students that indicated an interest to start fall classes and four professors that survived the war and wanted to teach them. They had no president, and the endowment that they had for the college to fund the college was lost. So you have basically beat-up, dilapidated buildings. You have maybe 40 students and maybe four professors and no leadership and no money. You're in 1865. You're in a meeting in Lexington, Virginia, and this is the situation you're faced with. This school is in total disarray. You guys are the trustees. You've got to decide what to do. How are you going to deal with this situation? Is this not a business situation? This is a business situation. You've got to come up with practically, how do we handle this? What do we do? We don't have any money. We don't have any assets. We barely have students. We barely have professors. What are we going to do with this? What the trustees did is they realized very quickly that they were not equipped to solve this problem. This was way beyond their means, their understanding, their knowledge, their experience. Their temptation was to resign, Larry. 
That's exactly, <laughs> that was exactly their temptation. But they knew that God had called this organization into existence. It had been in existence for well over 100 years. It was serving a great purpose and very important to the resurrection of the South. So they knew there had to be a provision from God for this institution. So as they began to ask, and they began to seek, and they began to knock, an idea came up. And the idea was what we need is a great president, a great administrator, a great leader, someone who's really respected by the community, who would draw students, who would draw faculty, who would draw funds, who would draw support, even though the South was in bad shape. There really wasn't much money. Confederate money was worthless. And that's all most of the Southerners had at the time was Confederate money. So there really wasn't hardly any money. It was like uh, during the Depression when there was no money here in the United States. So they knew they had to find a man that could help them. So they identified a man, and I'm going to call him Bob. And they went to see Bob, and they laid out this proposition to Bob. They explained to him the state of the institution and what they wanted to do and offered him the whopping salary of $1,500 a year to come and fix this institution with a caveat that we don't have the money and we don't know where we're going to get it. Now, that is really an appealing job, isn't it? makes you get real excited about that. Well, Bob was not overly excited with this offer, so he initially turned it down. But the trustees wouldn't give up. They continued to cajole him and talk to him and encourage him. And finally, he said, okay, I will sit down and pray, and I will get with my advisors, and, and we'll seek the Lord on this. So he did. For several days, he prayed. He talked to his advisors. He sought the Lord. And finally, on about the third day, he woke up, and he asked himself a question. He said, here I am. I'm 58 years old. My life expectancy is no more than another 10 years. Back then, life expectancy for men was about age 65. So he knew he was at the end of his life. He said, I've just been through a horrible four years. It's been tragic for my family, financially, personally, in every way. And here I am with an opportunity to touch the next generation. You know, what better work could there be to do for me at my age, at my point, with my experience, than to touch the next generation? So he decided to take the job. In September of 1865, he got on his horse and he rode from Richmond to Lexington. He showed, he showed up unannounced, reported for duty. A month later, they had a swearing-in ceremony. Now, this was back in the days when somebody was installed as the president of an organization. They had a swearing-in ceremony. Now, we don't do that today, except for the president of the United States or maybe high-level government officials. But basically, he was sworn in. He basically took a pledge of allegiance and swore to uphold the values and principles of this organization. And then they had a prayer. And the prayer for most of us is not... Not, not very meaningful, it's just a formality that we do, but it was very meaningful to Bob because Bob knew there was no hope for this organization without the work of the Holy Spirit and the leading of God as he went, went about reconstructing this institution. So it was a very sobering time, a somber time. The first thing Bob did when he got into office is sit down and decide, what is my philosophy going to be? And he realized... The, the, most, the most important thing about education was something that we today totally disdain, and that is imparting a biblical worldview to the students. He realized that if I help educate these students and all I do is I give them facts 
and teach them about history and teach them how to crunch numbers and I don't give them the character and values to use these properly, what have I created? I've created tyrants, you know, terrorists, people that are going to abuse God's world, His creation. So he said, I can't do that. I have got to produce men and women of God first, and then I will put into them the education they need to really rule God's creation. You see, he had a real kingdom mindset. He understood the reason we were here was to rule God's creation. We think today we're here to make money and, or, or have fun or have a nice family, those kinds of things. All those things are okay, but the real fundamental reason why we are here is to rule God's creation God's way. He understood that, and he practiced that reality fervently. So he, as he began to construct this philosophy, he began to teach his faculty, this is the way we're going to live. This is the way we're going to be, and he taught the students. He began to institute practices. For example, chapel. Chapel was not a formality there. It was not a requirement either, but it was a very serious thing. And, and Bob was there every morning at 7.45 to 8 o'clock for chapel. Chapel was six days a week, Monday through Saturday. It was a very serious thing to him because Bob knew that it was very important that he model what he was trying to impart to his students. So going to chapel said something to the student body about his commitment to God, his dependence upon God, his faith in God, and his reliance on God for every aspect of this institution. Then he went about getting to know every student because he knew that it was very important that he relate to every student. So he made it a point to know every student's name. Furthermore, he had a near photographic memory so he could remember your grades. And when your grades were not great you got to go see Bob. And that wasn't always fun because it's not that Bob was cruel or mean. He was never that. But Bob, Bob's conversation with you when you went to see him was always about your worldview because he knew if you weren't doing well in school, it was because something was wrong in your thinking. Your worldview was wrong. And so he had many conversations with his students where he simply pointed out to them things like this. He would say, your parents are making a great sacrifice to send you to this institution. And you are throwing that sacrifice away because you are not committing yourself to your studies. And that reflects an, an attitude of ingratitude. And you need to be on your knees in thankfulness to God that you have an opportunity to be here and that your parents have a heart to send you here. And when he got through with them, of course, they're on their knees. They're on their knees literally because this man is so persuasive and powerful in his communication. He was an incredible leader. And they knew whatever he said, said, he did it. This is the way he lived. He was a man that was known to be a man who walked the walk. He was not a man of many words. He was a military officer in the Civil War. And on one occasion, he was getting ready to lead his troops into battle. And he literally rode down the battle lines and said not one word... And one of the soldiers stood up and said, if anybody doesn't go out and fight with all our heart after that speech, they're crazy. Now what he was saying was the mere presence of this man and his character was so powerful that that's all that was needed to motivate the troops. Well, that was true of the students. The mere presence of his, of his, in his office was just awesome. There was a student one time that talked about how he was going to go in and see the president and how he would not break down. Well, about 10 minutes later, he's in tears outside the president's office.
because the power of the, of the character and the, the leadership qualities in that man and the Holy Spirit that was in the man was so overwhelming to the student that he could not help but break down and repent for his bad attitude. This man was, was incredible about his, his, his uh, relationship with the parents. He made sure that he connected with parents. When parents would write letters in, you know, to, to Bob, and they would inquire about their students, Bob answered every letter personally. Every letter. He wrote a letter back to the parents explaining the situation. Now, as, as serious as Bob was and as, um, as diligent as he was about, about bringing biblical reality to this institution to the students, he also had a fun side of him. There was an incident one time where one of the students noticed that some of his logs were being stolen. And he couldn't figure out who was stealing his logs, so he decided to uh, carve out the center of one of the logs, and he put gunpowder in the center, and then he sealed the cover. So a few days later, there's an explosion. And it turns out it was one of the professors. So, of course, it, it didn't take long before the, the student was summoned to see Bob. And Bob was a, very, uh, a man of justice. So he always let everyone wanted to hear both sides. So he said, okay, give me your side. And the student said, uh, sir, you need to understand it was not a malicious prank on the professor. I have suspected somebody has been stealing my firewood, and so I planted a trap. I put some gunpowder in this firewood, and lo and behold, the professor took my firewood, and that's what happened. And Bob sat there very kindly and said, Next time, use less gunpowder. <laughs> so he had a fun side to him as well. He was a very just and kind man. So you look at this man, and you look at him over five years that he was the president. He took this small liberal arts college from a total state of disrepair, a total state of chaos, really bankrupt state, a state in which, by all rights, they should not have survived. And he turned it into a strong institution with a great reputation, even added to the curriculum. It became a university. They added the sciences and upper-level mathematics and in medical studies and those kinds of things under his tutelage and his vision. He took what was rightfully dead and he brought it to life. Now, how can you do that in the midst of chaos? And that's what was going on in the South in 1865 was nothing but chaos. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to submit to you it takes an incredible man of God to do that. And I want to just share with you some of the highlights of his life that made him that man of God. And I share this to say, hope that each one of us sees the connection that the events of our lives are destined and designed by God to take us where he wants us to go to do what he's called us to do. Every event in Bob's life was leading up to this point in time when he saved this institution from death and despair. He was born in 1807. His father, Henry, was a Revolutionary War hero. He, he served under General Washington with great distinction. After the war, his father became a civilian and found civilian life very difficult. In fact, he wound up in debt. He also wound up very sick. He wound up in debtor's prison at one point. His father had a horrible time in civilian life. When, when Bob was about six years old, his father left home for the purpose of seeking medical care. He never returned. Five years later, the family got word that his father had died. So Bob grew up essentially fatherless. The only thing 
that he connected to with his father was he wanted to be a military officer like his father. That was a, a deep, burning passion in his heart. His mother basically was a shaper of his life. His mother imparted biblical worldview and biblical values to him, trained him. When he was a teenager, his older siblings are gone. His younger sibling is, is too young to be of much help to his mother, so he's pretty much the person of the home. At that time, in his teenage years, his mother gets ill and becomes an invalid, and so now he becomes her caretaker. And what he had to do during those days was sacrifice his own personal teenage years, sacrifice his interest, his desires, his agenda, and serve his mother. He learned what it was to serve and sacrifice from that experience. In... 1824, he had the opportunity to, uh, to meet President Jackson. The opportunity came through the relationship with the Washington family. And President Jackson was informed of, of what Bob's uh, desire was to be a military officer, so he wrote a letter of recommendation to the military academy. And I can, you can imagine if at the West Point uh, superintendent got a letter from the president saying, you ought to admit so-and-so, they're probably going to be admitted. So that's how he got into West Point, was a letter from the president. He started West Point in 1825. Four years later, he graduated. And you've got to understand, that in and of itself was a, a challenging thing. People died going to college in those days. They died. And the reason they died was, was several. One is the, the arduous task of living during that time. The buildings were not well heated. The winters were tough. And so frequently people would get sick. The medical care was not great. So we didn't know what to do with a lot of the diseases or how to treat them. And thirdly, the food was not that very good. It was hard to even find food, much less prepare it well and store it well. So there were a lot of ways that you could be physically attacked during those days. So it was not unusual for students to die during the course of the year. So success to most students was simply surviving. That was success, just getting through the class. That wasn't good enough for Bob. Bob insisted on being a good student. He insisted on during, during the hardship, sacrificing his interest, just like he had learned with it, dealing with his mother, sacrificing his pleasure to do what was best, which is learning and growing and maturity, which those are years which we need to be doing that. When you're, those college years are great times of maturity. So by the time he graduated in 1829, he graduated second in his class. And, yeah, he was very smart, but it wasn't that he was the second smartest man there. It was because of his diligence and perseverance and commitment to his duty as a student. We went home in the summer of 1829. It was June of 1829, and he discovered his mother was even worse than ever. She was to the, at the point of death, and on, Je on July 10th of 1829, she died. He spent the rest of July tending to her affairs, settling her estate. They didn't have much, so it didn't take long to do that. And then he uh, decided before he went to his first duty post that he was going to stop by and see the Washingtons. So he, he went and stopped by there. And when he stopped by there, he noticed a young lady over in the corner that he hadn't noticed before. Of course, it had been some years since he had been to the Washington home. And as he introduced himself, he realized that this young lady was a childhood playmate, that when they were young, when they were six, seven, eight years old, they had played together. And now he was grown and she was grown. And... Sure enough, they took up an affection for each other, and two years later they were married. And so his wife was the great-granddaughter of George Washington. 
And that brought him great comfort and encouragement because of his father's relationship with George Washington. His first duty post was in New York City. Uh, because he was second in his class, he, he got to choose what he wanted to do. He chose to be an engineer. So he went to New York to strengthen the uh, defenses of New York City. If you've read any of the history of the Revolutionary War, you know that the British did a number on New York City. And so the United States government wanted to be sure New York was better protected. So he was up there as part of that garrison doing that. Over the next 15 years, he literally went all over the country doing engineering projects. In 1846, the Mexican War came on, and he was assigned to be part of General Scott's brigade that went down there. He was basically an engineer, and he was also a scout. And so he served for two years with great distinction. In fact, his distinction was so great down there that General Scott singled him out and said of him, he is the greatest soldier in America today. Incredible, incredible comment coming from the leading general of the army. In 1848, he was assigned to Baltimore, and he, there he continued his engineering responsibilities, and he built a new fort to protect the city. In 1852, he was assigned to West Point. He was the ninth superintendent of West Point. And for three years, perhaps these were the three most pleasant years of his life. His family was with him. He stayed in one place. He had not done that in the prior years of his military service. He was always moving, going from one project to another. Now his family got to be in one place for three years, and they enjoyed Baltimore. And he, for the first time, had access to a library. We're all very spoiled. We want a book, we get on the line, we, 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 we dial up Amazon, we order our book. It's that simple. If you were like, like Bob in those days, you didn't have access to libraries traveling around the country. There were very few libraries anyway. And so when you're traveling around doing engineering projects, you didn't see books very often. So now he's at West Point and has a chance to really to digest and read world history and geography and military history and mathematics. He really dug in like a student and just, just voraciously absorbed this information and loved it. In 1855, he was assigned, by then he was a colonel, and he was assigned to be the head of the 2nd Cavalry which was stationed in Texas. So he came to Texas. And basically he was on Indian duty. And that lasted for two years. And by the way, it was very boring, monotonous, dirty, lonely duty. It was very tough duty. But Bob never complained. He knew that God had him there for a reason. You see, the older that Bob got, the more convicted he was of the reality of the biblical worldview. He saw everything in his life as given to him by God for a reason. His job was always to do his best and seek to understand what God wanted to do through his hands. In 1857, he got word that his father-in-law, the grandson of George Washington, died at age 77. Since there were really no other males back home to tend to the family farm, he got a leave of absence and returned to the family farm. He found it in great disrepair and much to his surprise, he found his wife in a similar condition that he found his mother in some years before. His wife was now an invalid, and she was not able to care for the house. So he got an extended leave of absence for two and a half years to settle his father-in-law's estate, which included problems with debtors, almost no cash, the farm in disrepair, and not bearing much crop. He had a few slaves, but the father-in-law had told him in his will I want the slaves released on a certain date. In the meantime, you care for them. And that didn't bother him at all because he didn't believe in slavery. 
he was very eager to free the slaves, even though it would put him in a hardship and a bind. He didn't really have a way to take care of the farm without the slaves. But he was very eager to do that anyway. For two and a half years, he did things that he was not gifted to do. And from that, he learned the importance of being willing to stay in the game that you were assigned to, even if you didn't know why you were assigned to it, and even if you weren't particularly gifted to do it, you continued to do it faithfully. He was a man that... If you were to assign a value to this man, probably the value duty would be the, the highest way to describe this man. He was a man who did his duty as almost no one else I've ever read about in history. So he dutifully went about taking care of that farm and putting together the pieces of his father-in-law's estate, which now became his estate, by the way. And this was mainly his possession. You know, he didn't really have any... On an army salary, you don't make much money. He didn't inherit anything from his parents. His wife's family gave him this farm, and that was pretty much it. So if you looked at his balance sheet back in uh, 1860, pretty much what you would see on the asset side is a farm. You got a few slaves that are getting ready to be released. You got almost no cash, and he was working hard to pay off the liabilities. And that's why it took him two and a half years before he could go back to his duties in the military. In January of 1860, though, he got the conditions in good enough shape that he was able to go back to Texas and resume his duty as head of the 2nd Cavalry. Now, I don't know if that was going from the frying pan into the fire, but it may have been, because he wasn't good at farming, and he sure didn't like the boring life in Texas. That wasn't fun, but that was what he was assigned to do. So he was dutiful, and he went back and did that. He did that for a year. And during that year, it became very clear that the North and South were separating. And gradually, one state after another began to secede from the Union. Finally, February 1st of 1861, Texas voted to secede from the Union, and he's sitting there in Texas. So the United States government called him back to Washington, told him, be here by April 1st. April 1st, he shows up in Washington. He sits down to a meeting with a gentleman, and the gentleman has a, an offer for him. It's the job offer of a lifetime. This man has spent 32 years in the military. He's a colonel in the military. He's had very hard duty very monotonous duty, boring duty, thankless duty, and now on the table is the offer of a lifetime, the offer that any military officer would absolutely drool to have, and that was overall command of all of the United States Army. The whole thing, 100,000 men and all the resources of the United States government to back you up. Here it is. It's yours if you want it. He had been recommended for that position by none other than General Scott, who had observed his tremendous skill in the Mexican War. And when President Lincoln went to General Scott and said, who is it that we should get to, to run the army? Scott knew he was too old. He needed to find the best military officer in the country to do it. And without hesitation, he said, Colonel Lee. Colonel Robert E. Lee. And so... This colonel, this colonel who had bled for the Union now, has been given this opportunity to command the Union Army. Now, Colonel Lee knew that there were a lot of benefits with that particular job opportunity. Number one, he was going to skip a rank and go directly to Major General. Now, that's pretty cool. I mean, any, any officer would want that. Plus, all the trappings that go with leading an army like this. But there was a downside to it. And the downside was he would have to do something that he knew he couldn't do. And he, above all, was a man of principle. 
And he knew he would be asked to invade his own state. Now, you have to understand his perspective on states is different from ours. And perhaps the best way to think about his perspective is to think about our relationship, that is, the United States, to the United Nations. The United Nations is a confederation of independent sovereign countries. And if you were a representative to the United Nations, your loyalty would be to your country. It is not to the United Nations. It's to your country. The United Nations tries to work for the good of the whole. Well, that's the way Robert E. Lee looked at the United States. He viewed the states as being the sovereign countries, and the confederation was the United States, that is, the assembling of these states together to do things for the common good. The idea of invading his state, just he could not entertain it, was not acceptable. So without hesitation, this man declined the offer. And when he had declined the offer, not only did he decline the offer of a lifetime, listen to what else happened. He lost his job. He lost virtually all of his assets, and he lost his citizenship. That's what he lost. And he knew he was going to lose every one of those. Why did he lose his job? Because he had to resign his commission. I can't take on this command. Furthermore, I know you're going to invade the South, and I have no choice but to go defend my home state. So I have to resign. He knew he had to resign. His one asset, the farm, Arlington, that we all now know as Arlington Cemetery, Arlington was his family farm. That is right across the river from the Potomac. And he knew that when the war started, there was no way he could retain that farm. And he knew the South would not win the war. The probability of that happening was almost nil. But you see, victory and success to him was not about winning. This is important. Success to him was about obedience, doing the right thing. That's how he defined success. So there was never any choice in his mind. Furthermore, he knew that being on the losing side, that all of the soldiers would be disenfranchised as citizens of the United States. And all those things happened to him. By the end of the war, he lost Arlington. He lost all of his assets. He had no job, and he was not a citizen of the United States any longer. And that's the state he was in when the trustees of Washington College went to see him in June of 1865. He was in the state that many people would say he was a loser. He lost the war. Who is he? He has no assets. He has no job. He has no standing in the community. He's just lost this war. But I submit to you, he was the greatest Christian that possibly has ever lived in this country. Because this man, every day of his life, got up and asked himself, what am I supposed to do today? And he did it regardless of what the outcome of the day was. Regardless of what he could see was going to happen, he did it. Because he didn't see outcome as his responsibility. His job was to simply obey. And so this is the man that they chose to lead Washington College. By the way, uh, Liberty Hall Academy was its name prior to George Washington giving an endowment to the college that really ran the college. When he gave that endowment, they changed the name to Washington College. So that's, Washington College was the third name. It started out under another name, then it was changed to Liberty Hall, and then it was changed to Washington College. And today it's called Washington and Lee University. The story here really impacted me on several levels. Number one is, as I look at myself today, and I ask myself, would I walk away 
from the job opportunity of a lifetime based on principle. Would I do that? Would you do that? I think most of us would not do that. Because I think most of us in this particular time worship money. Now, I know when I say that, most of us immediately throw up the defense, no, I don't worship money. But I'm going to just, just submit to you for your consideration that maybe you worship money. Over and over again, when I go see clients, I talk to people, I interact with people, I am seeing money-driving decisions. To Robert E. Lee, money never drove decisions. Now, it isn't that he didn't enjoy money, want money. In fact, he thought working as a military officer, he was pretty well set financially. He actually thought that. But when it came down to making a choice on principle, money was never in the equation. It was never consideration. If I have to lose everything, I am going to be true to my faith was his perspective. And I'm going to submit to you, if we want to be great Christians in the marketplace, that's the way we have to think. We've got to get it that it's about obedience. Success is obedience to God. Success is not how many dollar bills I have in the bank. It's not how many zeros are after my name. He understood very clearly that he came into the world with nothing, and he's going to go out with nothing, but he's going to have a bank in heaven that's full of riches because he figured out true riches was about obedience to God and doing the will of God. That's the kind of man he was. I submit to you, we need to be people like that in the marketplace today. And if we start living that way where money is not driving our decisions, what's driving our decisions is the question every day, Lord, what do you want me to do? In every situation, Lord, what is your will in this situation? And we're continually answering that question by seeking and discerning the Lord's will, and money is never the driving decision maker. As we begin to live that way, we will live differently. I promise you. Over and over again, I go into companies and I hear the same thing. It's about money. It's about the bottom line. Whatever it takes to make the bottom line. That's the driving metric today is the bottom line. We need to change the metric. The metric needs to be obedience. What is the will of God? How do I do the will of God in this situation? Robert E. Lee was a man that did the will of God. And God did a tremendous thing through him. He made him a great example. And just a final story to tell you how great he was. When he was ill, in his last days of his life, he went on a trip to try to get some relief. He went down south. At one point, he's on a boat, and people find out he's in town. He was so regarded and respected, even though he lost the war. 5,000 people came to the dockside to see him. Somebody came down to get him. They said, General, there's 5,000 people out here to see you. Would you please come out and say something to him? He came out on deck. He was very frail. He's five foot seven, probably only weighed 130 pounds at that time because he was dying. He got on deck. As soon as he got on deck, he took his hat off, and the whole audience just stopped talking. It was still and quiet. And he stood there for a moment. He bowed for a second, and then he went back down underneath. And then it just erupted into this incredible roar of applause. This was a man that walked in such integrity, had such a reputation that he was regarded with great, great esteem and honor, so much that even though he wasn't a citizen, people tried to nominate him for president of the United States. That's what it looks like to walk with God. It's not about money. It's not about power. It's about obedience. Lord, give us the grace to learn to obey 
and define success as obedience to God. We hope you've been challenged by this podcast to consider biblical work principles in the workplace. For more information, visit strategieswork.com or to give feedback or sign up for our newsletter, please send an email to podcast at strategieswork.com. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time.